Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello. Hi. And welcome to the podcast for all of our listeners and you, Daniel. Uh, the Laws of Style, podcasting to you high above Bryant Park at the offices of HBA uh, in New York City. Today, uh, I'm joined by Daniel Dugoff, who's a friend, a client, a, a, a mentee, I guess yeah. we yeah, would yeah. say. Um, as we met um, first through the CFDA incubator program, yep, um, where you were uh, you were selected and uh, you were in that program for a couple of years, yeah. Um, I guess maybe backing up, tell us a little bit about your um, you know your career, your yeah. education, and and leading into your design, both with uh, D Dugoff, which yeah. is your menswear brand, yep, uh, and the more recently created Homoco which is your swimwear line. Yep. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Nice yeah. Thanks for here. coming in. Good to see you. <laughs> nice haircut. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah. So I am a menswear designer, but not by education. I studied architecture in college at WashU in St. Louis mm-hmm. and uh, loved design, but not that design. <laughs> now, now, is that because at WashU there was no... Apparel no, there, design? No, there's a program? really strong fashion program. I, I made a decision when I was in... I was 17 that uh, I was looking at art schools and architecture schools and I was on a tour of an art school with my dad and I was like, I don't want to choose painting and have to do painting for four years. Right. And like all the architecture programs I was looking at were like, we give you a problem mm-hmm. and then he, you get to draw, you get to build models, you get to do computer animations, you get to do sort of whatever materials you want to do to solve that problem and to explain your thought process behind it and the more i looked into it the more i sort of realized that architecture school is like the liberal arts of design school you're thinking about the hinges and the doorknobs and you're also thinking about like city master plans and like the bus schedule to get somebody from one side of the city right the urban planning element which you know nicely bleeds into some of the other liberal arts you know social studies and and then, and then on top of that, WashU was a great place to do that because it was a four-year studio program, but also in a liberal arts college. So I yeah. took history and math and science, and I was lucky that I got to... Uh, our language requirement was fulfilled by architectural history. Really? So I didn't have to take a language. I didn't know architectural <laughs> history was a language. It just, but, but I guess. It got us out of some liberal so arts you can, credits. So you, you can tell us what those things that you know most people call rotundras or whatever, you, you, you know exactly I may have called. been able to in the past. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So, yeah. I, I, so I, it was a great education. And towards the end of it, I realized what I realized when I was 17, that I didn't want to be an architect, that I yeah. wanted to work at design and that I was really interested in fashion and I'd always been looking at fashion as references for what I was doing in architecture school and for my projects and uh, just sort of naively wrote letters to a couple designers that I liked and ended up with some internship or interviews for some internships. And, and was that in St. Louis or New no, York? No, it was uh, in New York okay. and I'd always planned to move to New York after graduation and Moved here two weeks after graduation. Started yeah. working for, started interning for a women's brand and a men's brand because I wanted to see the difference. Mm-hmm. And they were very different. 
and really liked the menswear brand I was working for yeah. and stayed there for a year or so. Ended up meeting somebody who worked at Marc Jacobs okay. and worked at Mark, ended up working at Marc Jacobs for two and a half years. And then on the menswear side or on both? menswear as a men's tech designer. Okay. Which is like explain that for our listeners. Who yeah, may not know so what that means. technical design is a department that exists in bigger companies and does not exist in small companies. Indeed, uh, <laughs> where you're sort of a liaison between design, fabric and trim development, and production. So we essentially, our team owned all of the sampling process. So the design would pass us the concept sketch and references and we would build all of the information that gets sent to the factory to make that actually happen mm-hmm. and then we get the sample back and had and we would present that back to the design team okay. and all of the iterations of change from went through you that whole process went through us until it was approved for production okay. and then we'd pass like a complete set of information to the production team okay but and then it's more complicated than that. But part of what our responsibilities included was all the domestic sampling. So okay. we did a lot of stuff in New York, a lot of sampling and some production in New York. Mm-hmm. So, and often around the yeah, garment around the district garment district here, and where we are. And that was that was kind of my favorite part of that job was like getting to leave the office and yeah. go hang Walk out over in factories. And look at zippers. Yeah. And you know, or... pull together trim packs and right. sit down in factories and problem solve and figure out um, why things weren't looking the way they were supposed to look. And I had amazing mentors and people that I worked with at that job who mm-hmm. I could sort of call it my LVMH fashion school. It's like I was there for like a little over two years and I learned how to do things the right way, how to develop product. And you could feel that within the Mark Jacobs organization that there was this, this, this wizened old uncle that was supportive in LVMH. That was a oh yeah. Was well, I, I was coming from small brands where we uh, sometimes made a sample, like a proto sample, before we did the runway sample, <laughs> like okay. maybe. Right. But at Mark, we would there was resources, and yeah. we could do things. We could fit on a model we weren't fitting on the designer in a mirror like right, it, right. It, there was uh it was a, it was a proper organization yeah and uh and was towards the two-year mark i kind of it's like this is great i've learned a lot but i want to be a designer i don't want to i want to run a company i want to be involved in bigger decisions mm-hmm. and while this job of liaison liaising between teams was mm-hmm. great there were like bigger structural problems that i could see and like that that yeah. portion of that brand doesn't exist anymore yeah um there are bigger problems that i could see as a 24 year old that uh i just i i i couldn't change because it's yeah. too big of a company so at 24 yeah with several years at that point yeah. of, of, of relevant a bit experience. Of yeah, a little bit of time. Uh, you launched Didugov. Yeah. Um, it was kind uh, of an accident. Really? Yeah. Okay. So well, I, I didn't have a fashion portfolio. Okay. So I started putting together a fashion portfolio, and I didn't know what a fashion portfolio looked like, and I would right. like ask my friends to see theirs, and like I didn't think they were that good. It was, it was a bunch of clothes. <laughs> yeah, it's right? a bunch of clothes. Yeah. It's a bunch of sketches. It's like... Uh, 
a, a page with swatches of fabric and it's mm-hmm. like, I don't know. I, I, and so you put one together. So I put one together yeah. and started showing friends and yeah. um, friends who were running showrooms and friends who were designers at other brands. And, mm-hmm. and the feedback that I got was like, this is cool and nobody's doing this kind of stuff. You should make it. Yeah. How do I do that? And they're like, well, you go to the factories <laughs> that you're working well, you, with. Well, you knew a part of that. Yeah. No, no. I knew how to like, sure. make it. But yeah. I didn't know how to like make, make it. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like fund, big picture. Fund the making of yeah. it, which is, which is definitely the big, yeah. you know, the starting point of that uh, problem right. to have. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the problem at the end, selling it. Yeah. Um, but you'd, you'd seen that part yeah. a little bit. Um, so describe it. I mean, yeah. how, you know, the line, the line still exists. Yeah. Um, and I personally have several suits that yeah. you have created, which, uh, today, I, I, I always love and I get, <laughs> I get really, really great comments on. Yeah. yeah. I apologize for not today. I had, I had, um, well, it's fashion week. You have a lot of commitments. Uh, well, it's not only that I had, a, I had a proper, I won't say who the who the client is, but it's yeah. a public company. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, no, you know, there's a, a certain good. expectation for your lawyer that, I, and I'm not going to misdescribe the yeah. D. Dugoff line. No, but, but it, you know, there's no gray flannel no. in that line, which is what I'm wearing yeah. today. So Dugoff, Dugoff always had the same base idea that's always been like, it's never been a concise way to explain it, but I think the the, the easiest way to explain it was. I really loved a lot of European menswear brands and not the tailored brands, but like the designer menswear brands. But I felt like when I'd go into Bergdorf or into Barney's and like think about like, how would I wear this in my life? It felt like I was wearing theater clothing. Okay. And what I loved was the fabrication and the fabrics. And then there was always some detail or some fit or cut that was like saying too much. Uh-huh. And what I wanted to do was to create like a an American ease with those fine fabrics. Mm-hmm. And part of that was not taking the American ease part of that is not taking itself too seriously and using color and using print and mm-hmm. details that make it and never funny, but kind of witty. Yeah. No, and they're definitely a nod to just irreverence. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, uh, that was also like the hardest part of the brand is that like yeah. it's trying to sit in an in-between place between between European tailored and American leisure. Yeah. And like, and yeah. the first collection was super small. I had some friends do make patterns for me in their basements. Like it was like we like chewing gum and chicken. Wire. Yeah. Yeah. We like really scrapped it together. And then, uh, I talked my way into a trade show. Okay. Somehow. Yeah. And it was, uh, was it magic man? Oh, right. Yeah. I talked myself right. into the man yeah, show. I remember seeing you at, uh, um, and it was, I, I got two, cl- two accounts and it was like, all right, now I have to, Okay, I bought, I sampled this. I like, right. I got into a trade show. Now I have to make what it. What next? I have to make it. So then I made it. And then, uh, and I was working out of my apartment and like it was winter and I was going crazy because I'd be inside for like four days at a time. And then, and then I sampled the next collection and opening ceremony picked it up and East Dane picked it up and like a couple other like 
bigger accounts. And for the benefit of some of our listeners yeah. who may not understand the industry and yeah. its timing. So you sampled your next season yeah. before delivery of your first season. Yeah. Right? So it was a... So you're thick in it. You've started a business. Yeah. And now, not only are you going out of pocket to fund production of those two accounts that bought... But yeah. you also have to go further into pocket, into yeah. one's own pocket, yeah. to fund the sample production for the next season. Right. So it's two collections a year, and essentially, the, each collection delivers within a month of showing the next collection. Right. So, And how many collections were produced on the men's side at Mark Jacobs? We, that's a good question. We delivered 11 times a year. Okay. We delivered every month except for January. Yeah. Um, it was shown, I think it was only shown twice a year, right. but we would also develop a runway like capsule on top of the main collection because the men's schedule was two months ahead of the women's schedule. Right. So we would design men's, and then a month or two later, the women's team would decide what runway it was going to look like. And then a month later, we would have to develop a men's collection that sat yeah. both with what we'd previously developed and with women's. So it was just like all this development for. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, it's um, you think of the job of, of Mark Jacobs himself, yeah. right. Who's on top of all of that yeah. and is looking at all of that. And, you know, it's, it's shocking that there's not more schizophrenia in, in the industry because yeah. you just, you have so many balls. Yeah. In it's, the air. It, and it's so much product and it's so many factories and it's so much, yeah. it's just like, it was crazy. And, and, and Dugoff quickly became a logistical, not, it wasn't, it was never a nightmare. I love it. But like, it was, my job was not a designer. My job was operations. Right. And, right. and I asked for that. And I, yeah, indeed, and you I, did. And I'm good and, at and it. I think you saw it coming. But, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but it was also like I could fund season to season mm-hmm. and make that happen, but I could never fund building a team. And it was I was exactly I was building everything. In other words, in, in investing beyond yeah. just what you individually were capable. Of. Yeah. So it was like one season would help with development for the next season and I could always figure out how to finance the production to cover mm-hmm. the next thing and I would get a freelance job on top of it and consult for a brand right. for a couple months and put that money into it but that growth and the way the wholesale market at the time I was doing it was growing was like it was never quite getting it yeah well so you were selected as one of the CFDA um, incubator designers. Yep. Tell us about that process and the incubator itself and you know, how, how that, how that helped, how uh, at times maybe that was not a hindrance, but you know, also some of the challenges that, that, that any incubator. Well, it's a really unique incubator program because people think of incubators and accelerators as like quick but fashion isn't quick microwave. Yeah. (laughs) It's like you go to Silicon Valley for six weeks and like, learn something and meet a hundred people. And then you've, and then you're you're incubated. And then the chick emerges from the shell. The CFDA incubator program was a two year business development program. And it's, it was, it's a different model and, um, and it makes sense in two years. Like you, 
what you start is barely in stores at the end. Right. Well, and, you know, the CFDA is a nonprofit industry association. Right. So unlike a more sort of venture-backed incubator right. where there's really a mandate to get the chick out of the shell, um, you know, uh, <laughs> sorry for that analogy, yeah. but... I remember incubators yeah. back in the 70s yeah, yeah, when the, when the in, chicks would hatch. Uh, <laughs> right. The CFDA's mandate was more, you know, a sustainable growth. Exactly. A, a path that, that might be, hey, we're, we're, we want to create a billion-dollar brand, or a path that might be, I want to create a sustainable, and here read not environmentally necessarily, yeah. but just a, a financially sustainable brand that, that throws off enough money for me to live on. Exactly. And what... Uh, when I got into the incubator, my vision of what it was going to be was like, oh my god, I'm going to get to Barney's and Bergdorf's and Neiman's and like and Bloomingdale's and like this is going to be huge. And the first season in the incubator was the first time that Dugoff wholesale sales plateaued. I was like, oh, and like all my friends at the trade shows that had other small menswear brands like weren't showing, mm-hmm. and like. Brands were going out of business. Wholesale brands were going out of business or scaling back. And uh, it quickly became clear that what the incubator was going to be was an opportunity to sit down and talk with industry leaders about what's going on with wholesale and what the opportunities are now. Mm -hmm. And once I wrapped my brain around that, and changed what I was trying to get out of the incubator. It like, it was a huge opportunity. I got, I could say that I was in the incubator and sit down with anyone. Right. And the access to not only designer, famous names that we, we could list names, but the people behind them, Mm -hmm. the people that are making the business decisions every day. Yeah. It was amazing. Also so frustrating because you talk to, CFOs, COOs of companies and they say, well, this is how you, this is how you solve that. And then you meet with them six weeks later and they're like, so how did you solve it? And I'm like, I'm one person. Like I don't have, well, and wasn't most of those answers, you know, many of those answers, this is how you solve that. If you got to the root of, of where that answer, you know, had to come from, it was, it was more money. Yeah. It was always more money. It was, uh, outside investment, it was moving away from wholesale and building direct to consumer, either through physical retail or online. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I had to keep reminding myself was like these people are brilliant, but also solve problems in the '90s and early 2000s, right? And are at the top of huge companies that are still living off of that success. They're in and, their major, you know, I mean, and, wholesale and having, may be struggling. And they're having the same problems I'm having. Right, right. So. But but more with declining profits as opposed to, right. to just revenue generation. Exactly. Because, you know, I mean, they're on the shelves. They're, they're, yeah. they're on the racks and, yeah. and they're established. Okay, so, so two, um, the movement of new brands. Yeah. Um, let alone the, the old legacy brands. Um, direct to consumer being you know, the, the business model yeah. that, that is being funded today. Yeah. I, I often uh, posit that that has made barriers to entry yeah. to starting a new brand higher than ever because unlike 
yeah. your story yeah. where you funded, you know, you bootstrapped yourself to fund sample production and yeah. immediately became a national brand, yeah. even with two wholesale accounts. Yeah. Um, and poof, there you are. Yeah. Um, or boom, there you yeah. are, not poof. Um, direct to consumer, you know, you got to have a fully built out website yep. with fulfillment. And, and you know, that, that assumes you're not doing brick and mortar, which yeah. is a whole let's not get thing. started with yeah. brick and mortar and, and becoming a shopkeeper. Yeah. Um, so is that something that you think is, is, is true? And moreover, I think that dovetails nicely into you describing Homoco, yeah. which is following that model. Yeah, so in concept, yes, I agree that the bar to entry is much higher for building a digital brand. The caveat, which is what I'm doing with Homoco, is that if you can create a community around a brand that you can build, uh, these are these are such uh, cliched words at this point, but inclusive and uh what's the word i'm looking for if you can build authenticity around a brand and and then people latch on and and you still need a huge marketing budget and you still need to finance huge amount of production and all of the and all the content that goes into marketing that right but uh, there's it's a it's just a different set. The grass is always greener. There's a, just a different set of problems yeah. and a different set of solutions, and it's just being creative about how you. Get and them. once you are there, yeah. So let's say you get to that somewhat promised land yeah. of you've got three brick and mortar yeah. retail locations in 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 great locations where your tribe, yeah. your your customer, yeah, and and. I'll ask the question so we can talk a little bit more about Homoco and, yeah. and what that tribe yeah, I is. Explain that. Um, you know, let's say it's it's San Francisco, Miami, and New York. Yeah, and you've got a fully built out website. Yeah. Now you're really freed up because your access point to your customer is direct. Right. And there is no middleman that is buying your product. And yeah. I. I'll, buying yeah. your product, placing an order for your product, paying yeah. for a portion of it yeah. and reserving the right to ship back what doesn't sell right. and get a credit against the next season's right. order. Um, now you control your inventory as yep. well and how much you make. And um, and you control the whole brand story. Right. You, you tell the story start to finish as opposed to relying on a retailer to finish the story for you. Yeah. Which is why I think in in this slightly new regime where there there aren't adjacencies anymore so yeah. so no longer would d dugoff or homoco maybe worry about am i am i next to rip curl yeah. in in a models yeah. or am i next to you know onia yeah. in in a boutique swimwear exactly. store in saint yeah. bart's yeah but you can create your own adjacencies, mm-hmm. really through. I, I, I've seen collaborations almost take that role. Yeah, collaborations, influencer marketing. Like right. Who's posting the pictures of it? Right. As, and now you have your own storefront, yeah. both virtual and if you have brick and mortar, actual, right. where those collaborations, those adjacencies, can cohabitate. Yeah. For as long as it makes sense for them to, for yeah. both brands, which I think is an interesting 
model and an interesting way for brands to kind of, you know, seize that, that control, but still give the customer something a little bit broader than just the one narrow thing that, that they're doing and doing well. Exactly. Does that, is that a model that, that you want to explore sure. through Homoco? Yeah. So, so I guess I should explain what Homoco is. Yes. Let's let us do that. Homoco is a, the easiest way of explaining it is Homoco is a gay lifestyle brand built around swim and summer and sustainable supply chain, affordable pricing, and basically endless print collaborations, both prints that I design and artists that I'm friends with design, but also influencers, locations, events, stores, like sort of endless what we can do. And it's Mm -hmm. Homoco was a, gas station chain that my great grandparents had in DC. So there's this like weird legacy Full circle and legacy element to it. Of like it was a gas station. My great grandparents started in during the depression and built to twenty ish gas stations around DC and my grandmother and do you have my grandmother ran the business with her husband with my grandfather. Uh-huh. Uh, my dad ran the business. Do you have images from those yeah, times? Yeah, I have black and white crazy archival trucks and images of stations and uniforms and trucks and amazing signs. They, I was like, why are all the signs so great? And my dad was like, because we would go to a sign guy and say, we need a new sign, and they would be, and they would say, well, this is what we put arrows on signs now because it gets people off the street onto your lot. Right. So there'd be like a bowling alley style. Mm-hmm. Homoco sign. And um, do you have any access to any of those? Yeah. Hard? Have, oh, wow. We have all, I have all the images. I have patches and like that were on So I can't wait and, for the opening of the San Francisco, New York, yeah. and Miami stores. Well, so what's, <laughs> what's great about Homoco is that everything we're doing is limited edition. So the swim trunk fit and fabric is consistent, and mm-hmm. the products that we're adding on top of that starting in a couple months um, will be consistent bodies but we'll keep telling new stories through the prints on them yeah which means that there are relevant places to show up and do physical events and to do a pop-up in provincetown or to be in uh, miami or like there's just so many places we can go meet our customer and be there for a day or be there for a month or any and maybe longer but what i like about it right now is that the opportunities are kind of endless and we don't have to be tied anywhere because we're digital we're right. a digital brand you can find us through instagram you can find us through your friends wearing our swim trunks uh and then we just happen to be where you are, where you're spending your summer and there's an inherent scarcity yeah in drops like that. Yeah. And I, 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 I'm meaningfully using the word drop yeah. because it sounds very much like what the fastest growing segment of the fashion industry has been for years now, yeah. which is sneakers. Yep. You know, so was that, was that a thought kernel that, that yeah, led for to sure. that? It, it was, it was, how do you build something desirable digitally? Mm-hmm. And the problem with selling a collection through Instagram is that you have the same stuff for six months. Right. And after you show it once, it's kind of done. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) And what 
I wanted to do is to create a brand that was constantly engaging and exciting, but also you knew you loved the product. Mm-hmm. It's a affordably priced swim trunk, and then the other layers of product and merch that accompany that. It's you. You know you love the product, and now it's your favorite illustrator on that swim trunk, and you're going yeah. away. And next you can't weekend. wait for the next drop. Yeah. And you know, there's nothing that says you can't reissue and, and exactly in fact, I'm and there sure can be evergreen and like people keep asking if there'll be solid colors i'm like sure maybe like that, that's that's a novel well, I'm idea a, you know i mean i grew up in the era of uh, surf and beach culture in yeah. southern california yeah. where uh, i i vividly vividly remember the neon trunk tray yeah. craze of mossimo and club sports where yeah, these yeah. were basically volleyball trunks yeah, yeah. Um, that we all wore down to the beach and it just they couldn't be bright enough you yeah know, my favorite was sort of the neon green yeah, yeah because i thought it made me look tanner yeah. which i think was misguided yeah. but be that as it may um sort of back to the story of homoco being one that that has roots within your family yeah. and the d dugoff line which you know my name is your name yeah um was there thought behind, you know, starting with an eponymous brand yeah. and then further, you know, having another brand, distinct product category, but also tied to your family? Is there? Yeah. Well, at the, at the, <laughs> <laughs> the roots of Homoco were actually going to be a product category within Dugoff. Okay. And, and because so, many of those prints that yeah, I have seen yeah. are evocative of you have a great line of, of shirts yeah. that, that are really known for the prints. Right. Uh, both short sleeved and long sleeved, like, you know, but but very fun. And graphic sweaters and right. and lots of color. And and the idea of bringing that sensibility to swim within Dugoff made a lot of sense. But as I started developing the product and the price and the sustainability story and and really wanting to live this authentically queer lifestyle that was part of Dugoff, but never overtly because of the price point and mm-hmm. because of not wanting to offend anybody. Mm-hmm. It, it just it just it just became its own thing. Yeah, and and it's so it's it's so exciting to work on because every part of that that we just went through is like authentically what I love and it's to kind of just be like this is the brand and you either get it and love it and want to be a part of this or it's not for you and like sure there's a million other places you can go and like that's fine like we don't have to be everything to everyone right for sure are are there brands that have a similar sensibility with respect to the the customer that you're going after. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, you know, I down in Tulum recently wore your trunks often because yeah. I like the cut and we'll yeah. get into to, to your approach to the design. Yeah. But, you know, as far as that market segment. Um, yeah. Well, there's there's always been a, a range of brands that are sort of like prestige gay brands. And every summer you go to Fire Island and like 
they're wearing this brand this summer and we're wearing this brand the next summer and, mm-hmm. and there's they have a pop-up on the in the pines or in provincetown or in palm springs and what i what homoco is doing differently is that often those these brands end up selling an image of what a gay man should be that is white mm-hmm. and chiseled and like and unattainable and they end up selling jock straps and sitting in more of a sex store context. Okay. And the thesis for Homoco is that we can be a mass appeal brand in the queer community and be really inclusive and right. show a full range of identities and ages and sizes. And, and your store doesn't need to be next to Rawhide in right. Chelsea. Right. Yeah. And that, and there's nothing wrong with that. And like, happily will sell wherever it makes sense to sell and tell a story, but that a product for gay people doesn't need to say that it's gay on it. It can just be, it can be a wink and a nod to a community. Right. Right. So leading into the design. Yeah. Um, and you know, for our listeners, there, there, there's nothing prototypically gay about the design. No, not that it's that's, a short swim yeah. trunk. Yeah. So, so how did you, um, how did you arrive at that length? You know, sort of where does it sit? Yeah. Will there be, you know, are there differentiations within it? Yeah. And so the the launch trunk, the the first trunk that we came out with, is a three and three quarter inch inseam trunk, which is shorter than most, mm-hmm. but the body isn't super tight so it doesn't it's not dripping in sex mm-hmm. but it shows a lot of leg yeah and it's this in between of being really comfortable to wear and this fabric has stretch in it and yep. it's an elastic waistband so it's super comfortable mm-hmm. to sit on the beach and it's in, super light it's yeah, got a very light dry. feel to a quick dry yeah it's um, a very comfortable trunk yeah and the idea is, is it's it's a good product yeah. You want, you want to wear it, yeah. and you know that when you buy the next one, it's going to be as good. It's the same product in the new print, right? Um, it, and of course, as things as the brand grows, there'll be a million new product categories, and we'll we'll introduce. We have to do a, a brief. We have to do a longer trunk. We'll do different waistband configurations, like anything outside of swim absolutely that yeah. you would tackle. Yeah. Uh, Beach is a beach and swim is the place to start because mm-hmm. the queer community has this long history of inclusive destinations that we go to to be our authentic selves. And I feel super fortunate that I get to be my authentic self all year round, but not everybody has that privilege. Right. And they're to to build a brand that lives in the space of inclusive summer and to broaden that out is, is where we're starting. Great. Yeah. Great. Well, pivoting a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in, in my book, the laws of style, yeah. I, I lay down a lot of laws yeah. about really how white collar professionals, um, are best advised to to present themselves sartorially, yeah. uh, particularly in this age of business casualization. And, yeah. you know, as a lawyer, I think there's a certain expectation 
for how I should look, and that's reflected best in in tailored clothing. Yep, for sure. I like um, my lawyers to wear. Yeah, so, I think it's you know it's at least the the. the Men, yeah, you know, and I think for women, you know, tailored clothing also, you know, oh. carries carries a quite a degree of weight. My mom's a lawyer, and the amount of time I spent growing up when I was growing up at department stores with her, trying to find business appropriate suits for Still women, a struggle for is, women, yeah. And then her favorite brands would always go out of business, and yeah, it's it's it it, I it is have, tough. Well, and when I was writing the book, my, my publisher, the American Bar Association, yeah. did want me to to cover both men and women. Yeah. And I think it's very hard as a man, yeah. for any man, even a fashion lawyer, yeah. um, to to be guiding women as to how to make their choices. I mean, yeah. you know, women's bodies, unlike men's in the workplace, unfortunately, are highly sexualized. Mm-hmm. They simply are. You know, the question of... If a woman is wearing a blouse that has a leopard print on it, if she's saying something different than yeah, I just like the print, of, is yeah. not something a man has to to go through. Right. It is not it is not a, a a jury that he has to appeal to. Yeah. You know, or the height of her heels. Yeah. Um, or the height of her boot. You know. So, I think it's a great. If the ABA, since I know you're listening, I mean, yeah. it's a great book, and I yeah. should write the foreword to that yeah. book, perhaps. Yeah. But uh, it, it's, you know, it's 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 definitely a struggle for women. Yeah. But but back to you. Yeah. All right. So so as an entrepreneur. Yeah. As a designer, how do you look to present yourself? And um, you know, is is Homoko and D. Dugov a a response to that? Is that the way that you know? Do you did you make the clothes because yeah. they're the way you want to look, or are there brands that you gravitate to? I wear almost exclusively Dugoff, and now on a daily basis, I'll wear Homoko t-shirts and beanies. And Uh uh, it's a good question. I like a lot of other brands. I rarely shop, right, for myself. Yeah, Uh, more from a time and finance situation than than anything else, but. I do think it's important that when I'm meeting somebody, I show them the reality of what's in my head, that mm-hmm. I project the brand that I am, or the brands that I am building. Yeah. And if I show up in sweats or I show up in a suit, right. it's, it's well, then Dugoff isn't believable. Right. I have that's okay. I have to live in the. I have to live in these worlds, and part of it is I'm building the worlds I want to live in. Right. Um, and Dugoff is definitely a reaction to wanting to give my friends a better, better options of what to wear. And right. nothing makes me happier than showing up to brunch and seeing people wearing my stuff. Yeah. Like my friends wearing my stuff. Yeah, it's great. For sure. Well, I always ask, um, you know, sort of the four W's of yeah. what my guests are wearing into the studio um and maybe you've answered most of that yeah. by, by your answer but um i guess for the benefit of just our our you know downloaders of yeah. uh, from itunes that that aren't getting the visual available on youtube yeah um what what do you have on and 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 who uh makes each piece yeah so i'm wearing a dugoff sweater okay with a Homoko t-shirt underneath it. Underneath. Which has this amazing marble oh. print. Now, is that so that's marbled and it's not tie-dye? It's sort of like on the quick 
flash up looks a little tie-dyed. Well, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a marbling process. They like starch the shirts and dip it into a marble bath. Oh, wow. It's amazing. And each one's different. Okay. And I have ones where like, the ones I wear are the mistake ones where like the sleeve didn't get dyed or there's like a giant <laughs> black spot on it. Right, the collector's item yeah. ones. Okay. Uh, a pair of Dugoff pants. Mm-hmm. And so those have a tuxedo stripe, a, a, a sort of a wide tuxedo stripe down yep. the side. Yep. And a pair of bloodstone boots. Yeah. And all blue. You're rocking the monochrome. Yeah, I, I end up that way a lot. Is that? Okay. Yeah. And is that sort of, um, you know, many designers yeah. have these uniforms. Yeah. And they're often different items, but they're a very similar color palette, which is usually pretty muted. Yeah. Um, often featuring a white or a black t-shirt. Yeah. Um, is that one of your things that you just kind of, hey, everything, most of the things in my closet are navy blue or... You know, it, it's easy. Yeah. And I do wear a lot of color. Like I wear a navy sweater basically every day, but lots yeah. of t-shirts, socks that yeah. are colorful well you do have a little now you know the only non-navy item are your socks yeah which are those made by anybody in the sort of pop sock regime is that nice no, laundry no or? they're old mark by mark jacobs socks oh, wow. we did a really good sock program every print we did also came in a sock oh wow yeah i didn't know that is that still a feature as far as you know at no. mark jacobs no I, well they don't there's no men's anymore oh right right it might be for women yeah. as well. I, they, no. may, they might do it for women, but I'm not sure. Yeah. But our men's socks were like bestseller. Yeah. Well, job. and you know that that's been a category growth category. You've seen a lot of new entrants. Yeah. And back to the DTC model. Yeah. I mean, you know, if if you have to keep your own inventory, socks yeah. are pretty. Yeah. You know, pretty small. Yeah. So well, uh, it's hard for fulfillment centers. I was talking yeah. to a brand last week that does underwear and socks. And they're saying that like they basically they used to work with a huge logistics center and had to move everything back to their studio because everything was getting lost. Wow! Because it's just like their packaging is so, so small. small. They're used to yeah like shipping a big crate. Yeah. Um, well, how about th- this? Is often a question I ask, which which you know gets answered in the either I don't know or there is no season. But the yeah. when. You know, Ooh. our third W, are any of these items from a particular season? Yeah. Okay. So the sweater, it's like, what year is it now? <laughs> the sweater is fall 2017. Okay. The pants are spring 2018. The t-shirt is current, well, is holiday current season right homoco okay uh no idea the socks are easily seven yeah. years old yeah well and so for listeners who might be confused yeah that a designer on a winter day although we've had some funky weather yeah. here recently is wearing both a fall item yeah and a spring item yeah. top and bottom yeah how does how does that work how how is it that that a spring item is still seasonally appropriate it, in winter? Yeah, well, it's barely winter outside today. <laughs> uh, True, and it's the, navy blue. It's not screaming. Yeah, it's spring. not screaming. It's not spring. Like it's a and, seersucker. And what what Dugoff does is introduces a style and then builds on fabrication. So I would almost every season do it in a cotton twill. Mm-hmm. And then in winter, also do it in 
a wool or a wool silk. So it's it's these were the spring ones because they have a nylon stripe down the side, Got but it. the nylon isn't exclusively spring. And, and what did the winter have down the side? Uh, did it in the corduroy? Yeah, there was a corduroy version, and there was um, like wool with a different color wool. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, you look great. Thank you. Um, the last W is really why, which I think you've more or less answered. It's kind of it's it's a little bit of your uniform, but any any further, you know, your day to day and this yeah. particular apparel choice. Uh, generally, I wear the same thing every day. I'd sometimes switch out the pants, but <laughs> generally the same thing most days. And uh, so the why is because it's a Wednesday. Because it's Wednesday yeah. and the sweater was clean. And... Right, right. Um, well, so shifting a little bit into what uh, I think we're both seeing as, as an additional um, I think unique business proposition heretofore. I know a lot of brands have have kind of suggested that some of their menswear might be appropriate for women, mm-hmm. some of their women's wear might be appropriate for men. Yeah. We're seeing brands come online now that are branded as unisex. Yeah, for sure. That are that are, you know, the, the flag is planted squarely in the middle saying, yeah. "Hey, this is intended for both of you." Yeah. Um what do you what do you think about I that? I love it. Yeah. I mean, for Dugoff I easily 20% of my online shoppers were women. Wow. And and who knows in store, right, what percentage it is and when it's a when it's a men's and women's boutique, things are merchandised all over the place and people shop how they want to shop, right? <coughs> um with Homoco is a really intentional proposition to launch with an elastic waist bathing suit because it's something that is gender neutral. Right. It's right. A short is a short and it's clearly sitting in a men's space, but it doesn't exclude. Yeah. Um, I'm not super interested in women's swim as a category. Mm -hmm. It honestly terrifies me. It's like one of, it's like (laughs) one of the most fraught, things a, a woman buys it's underwear that you wear in public right. and it's incredibly hard to get right and right now that's not in the the expansion plans for homoco but what i do love is making products that you love because you love them not because they're gendered a certain way yeah yeah well and and many of the prints they certainly are bright. They certainly, yeah. you know, for, for many women's wardrobes, they could pair nicely. Yeah. Um, maybe, you know, she can throw that over her slightly uncomfortable and tight fitting bathing suit. Exactly. So it's like could, when you're going into yeah. town for lunch, you put a trunk on, maybe right. you wear a trunk and a bikini top. Yeah. Maybe friends who wear them as gym shorts. Right. Why not? Right. Um, do you think, you know, in terms of the unisex offerings, any any challenges at retail for them, just given yeah. that the more traditional model would include a menswear buyer for a retail store and a womenswear buyer, and, you know, at least to date, doesn't include a, a unisex buyer. So Yeah, sort of... I, I feel like it often ends up in the men's, categ- in the men's section, mm-hmm. which is a shame because the men's budgets are 
always much smaller than the right. women's budget. So That's then a good it's, point. Um, but I was just reading in WWD about men's only brands where they're making exclusive women's sizes. And that was always a big thing with band of outsiders before they launched women's was right. So many women were buying it. it, it it's, it's opportunity and we'll see how it shakes out in physical retail. But I think people are buying what they want to buy and wearing sort of, there well, aren't any rules. Yeah. And I, you know, I mean, maybe what gets lost a little bit, I certainly think there are women for whom it's a point of differentiation or has yeah. been that they, they kind of shop a men's department right? and maybe they love that old band of outsiders at this point, yeah. dress shirt, and they were kind of known for that. That yeah. was their little nod to, I'm, yeah. I'm a little different and I have my own style. For men, maybe less so, although I've been known to shop certain women's departments. Yeah. Like I, I got a great pair of Philip Lim parachute pants yeah. that, that were in the women's department. Yeah. And I was just like, I got to have amazing. these if yeah. I can find them that fit. Um, and I, in a way, did that because I knew that was going to be something that... Um, not many people right. would You'd have. Be the only Certainly guy. not in legal circles. But, You'd be you the know. only guy at Fashion Week wearing those Right, pants. even in my hashtag menswear circles, yeah. it, it, would, uh, it would stand out a bit. But they were very muted, military. You know, yeah. they, 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 they had a... And they're probably from a vintage men's army pant that... Absolutely. That, yeah. was, that was where he started yeah. from. They, they, what was interesting about him is he sort of lined the pockets with like a satin a bright blue satin that had little paisleys in it yeah and it was just such an unexpected pop in a in a you know military green pant that i liked that but um where was i going with this god i start talking about my own pants and i lose i lose my train of thought um ah so the unisex offerings you know in a way kind of strip that buyer who's looking for a particular distinction of that distinction. Yeah. Um, you know, and so that may be a challenge that they face as well. Do you, do you think there's anything to that or is that, you know, brand is brand and there's so much more that is positive and inclusive about a unisex offering. Yeah. It's for people. Right. I think that what is, it's a tough question. I think what's exciting about it is that it, it takes away the stigma of buying something that isn't for you. Yeah. But maybe also that dulls it a little bit that you're, yeah. you're breaking a rule, you know, and in a way, you know, you look at someone who's in their twenties. Yeah. I don't think they really feel a stigma, yeah. at least no. here in New York. It's easy for yeah. us to say that, yeah. that, that kid who's in Phoenix, Arizona maybe does. Right. Uh, if he is in a women's department, but maybe I, I think less so. Yeah. Um, but certainly for older customers, I mean, you know, you wouldn't find my father, at least, you know, shopping a women's wear. Like, yeah. you simply wouldn't do but it. You always, it would... But there's stories of rock stars wearing women's jeans because yeah. it made their butts look better. Right. Like, there's... And, you know, between David Bowie and Mick Jagger, like, you yeah. want to talk style icons. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, those are two great ones. Um, let's see. I think last question, just because yeah. we're running low on time. Yeah. Um, Influencers, you know, have gotten expensive, mm-hmm. um, but it's often put forward really in the age of the influencer with, um, you see Rihanna is now being backed by LVMH, you yeah. know, to, to start a brand. 
um, they see so much value in, yeah. in what she represents. Do you think we're in just a spike of the age of the influencer? And I'll let you bifurcate a little bit. You know, Rihanna is a massive star yeah. versus an influencer who might have just a very narrow niche. Like I sat next to a woman last summer who described herself and I couldn't help but chuckle as a rosé influencer. But, cool. you know, that was her. her. Yeah, exactly. Um, so do you think uh, the age of the influencer is 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 just going to be a, a small period of time? No, I think, I think it's fundamentally changed how you access talent. And it's democratized who can... It's democratized who has, who has influence. It's somebody with 2,000 followers can tell their friends what's great and and change their mind yeah and the fact that that can be done on a huge scale with rihanna or kardashian but also on a super small scale with somebody in a small town who is doing something really creative with their social media Mm -hmm. and maybe and it it means that the talent agencies have no power in this anymore which is the middlemen have gotten a bit kicked i mean you do see some agencies coming online that represent what are now labeled as micro influencers but But, it's also sitting at a restaurant next to somebody who was running one of the biggest modeling agencies in new york and he was talking about how they're changing their strategy to be events focused they're they're their way of coping with this is to build experience because they can't manage the talent yeah yeah it's always been a difficult job to to manage other human beings and yeah. and, and derive your well, income from and that. and it feels a little it can get a little dirty Indeed. to say the least to say the least but and it, and dealing with and setting up partnerships with influencers is is hard and there's no baseline for mm-hmm. what's a what's free, what's paid, what's gifted, what's what's legal, what's not. There legal. is a disclosure requirement. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for for paid advertisings, it's yeah. you know, it's 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 essentially a you know, uh, to not defraud consumers who are out there. It's a consumer protection uh, component. It's it's hard to enforce. Right. Um, but you know, brands are best advised to 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 comply with it. Um, and most large influencers know about it yeah. and, and do comply with it. We advise on it a lot. For sure. It's, and it's, it's more And it's there. a growing and concerning yeah. problem. But you're also seeing more and more of these micro-influencers. Influ- I'll just continue to use that term because that following of 2,000, 5,000, 12,000, when you really do parse through it, yeah. is a much more engaged Absolutely. I'd much rather work with somebody who when they post a great photo of themselves is getting a thousand likes out of their 2000 followers. Right. As opposed to somebody who has a hundred thousand followers and gets 600 likes. Yeah. It's like, yeah. It makes 450 of which are little bots just immediately. Yeah. I I want somebody who's actually engaged with their followers and is building community and is building awareness and doing cool things. And that's, that's who's supporting Homoco, which is cool. It's that's who our followers are. Well, Daniel, that's a wrap. Thanks. Great chat. Yeah. Um, for your efforts and pains, you'll receive a, a copy of The Laws of Style. Thank you. Maybe another one. Yeah, sure. it's my second. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, and you are mentioned in the book, I think, somewhere in terms of business casual. Okay. 
Um, but uh, thanks for coming in. Okay. And uh, listeners, you too can obtain a copy of The Laws of Style by um, either searching Laws of Style and Douglas Hand on Amazon or my publisher's website, the American Bar Association. Um, follow me on Hand of the Law on Instagram and Twitter. And Daniel, you, you may have several handles at this point with yes. the two brands. So Dugoff is D-D-U-G-O-F-F on Instagram. And Homoco is H-O-M-O-C-O dot C-O instagram and that's also our url okay great thanks everybody for listening bye now you've been listening to the laws of style with douglas hand for more information go to our website at www.hballp.com and you can also follow us on instagram and twitter at at hand of the law thank you for tuning in and stay stylish